Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting day to over 60 countries. We're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in the middle of the third most important center in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, angels, VCs, incubators. This is where it is all happening. As I said, we're the third most important center in the world now after Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv, and it's called Silicon Beach, which is Los Angeles, California, but primarily from Santa Monica through to Venice, which is now chock-a-block full of entrepreneurs making the world a better place. Hollywood Boulevard, it's where technology and entertainment intersect, and I want to thank you all for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. I really do appreciate it. Now, the first item of news this week is a cross between kind of really cool and kind of really weird. Google wants pedestrians hit by self-driving cars to stick around, literally. The company's patented a form of, I guess, flypaper for adults (laughs) to prevent victims of collisions being dragged beneath the wheels. So if you get hit by a car, this adhesive sticks you to the bonnet of the to the bonnet hood of the car, and it reduces injuries in collisions with pedestrians. So you get hit, you stick to the front of the car, and uh, the car doesn't run over you. <laughs> That's kind of kind of weird, but kind of cool. Um, Google received a patent Tuesday for this kind of human flypaper that sits beneath the um, protective layer on the car's front. On impact, the sticky coating glues the victim to the car so they don't fall under the wheels or crunch onto the roadway. The adhesion of the pedestrian to the vehicle would probably also prevent the pedestrian from bouncing off. So, um, But Google has acknowledged, though, that it's not yet possible to guarantee that uh, self-driven cars would not hit pedestrians. That would be the best solution, wouldn't it, if they just didn't hit pedestrians at all. Now, while Google's testing its autonomous car, others have now announced their own driverless vehicle, including the recent announcement that Uber is now entering the market and it's deploying test vehicles in Pittsburgh over the next few weeks. The company's autonomous Ford Fusion which has been outfitted with sensors from Uber's Advanced Technology Centre, will have a human in the driver's seat to monitor operations, at least initially. The car will be used to collect mapping data in addition to testing self-driving capabilities. And the car includes laser scanners, radars and high-resolution cameras. Uber has notified local officials and law enforcement of its plan for self-driving cars in Pittsburgh. Now, last month, Uber joined Google, Ford, Volvo and Lyft in announcing that they're forming a coalition to urge lawmakers to pave the road for self-driving vehicle technology. Uber CEO Travis Kalanick has long envisioned a future where his company cars operate autonomously. What that means for Uber drivers, we don't know, but... It would certainly save Uber a bunch of pain with all the stuff that's going on around the world at the moment from their drivers. The second piece of news that's really very cool and well overdue, there's a new coding university in Silicon Valley called 42, and it's unlike anything that we've seen before. Uh, First of all, it's free. That's pretty cool. Secondly, 42 welcomes all students between 18 and 30, selecting its student body based on intense four-week-long coding competition. And lastly, there's no teachers, 
no classrooms, just a ton of computers and a weird name, 42. The goal of 42 is to redefine education. And boy, is that needed. We at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show have been advocating for dramatic change to the education system for the past six years. According to 42, their mission is to uncover the talents of this generation in the field of programming and to do so on a broad scale. Now, 42 was founded in 2013 by Xavier Neal, and there are already 2,500 students learning to code in Paris, and he's investing $100 million into this new US version. Neil wants to educate 10,000 students within the next five years in Silicon Valley. Audacious ambition. We absolutely love it. Go, Xavier. Good on you, mate. Now, biofabrication is a 3D printing of body parts, as you may know. It's a process by which scientists can regrow most types of human tissue using 3D printers. Now, um, biofabrication can be used to repair cartilage, bone, muscles, nerves and skin, which have been damaged by trauma, disease or cancer or whatever. And it's predicted that entire organs are going to be biofabricated within a decade or so. Now, with the art of biofabrication being so new, there's no formal qualifications for working in this field. Now, that doesn't mean that a plumber can do it. But those who create body parts using the 3D printer, they come from a range of background and tend to collaborate across a lot of disciplines, including engineering, biology, materials science, medicine, all the things that you'd expect to be involved in biofabrication. Now, two Australian universities and two of the world's leading research universities in the 3D printing of replacement body parts, one in the Netherlands and one in Germany, they started working together last June on the world's first master's degree in biofabrication. Boy, would that be a qualification to have. Your future would be absolutely assured. Get in now, and in 10 years' time, you will be king of the kids. The universities have established a record in key areas of biofabrication, including polymer chemistry, cell biology, and clinical implants. And the universities each plan to have 10 students. The demand for places in this biotechnology degree were very high, and the students were carefully selected and not just for their technical capabilities. When you're doing biofabrication, communication skills are very important, not just being able to work across different science and engineering disciplines, but also being able to communicate very effectively with the clinicians around understanding the clinical problem and being able to deliver solutions. The the students have to acquire skills in chemistry, biology, materials and engineering, and they've got to integrate those skills into a particular project very quickly and efficiently. Each of the 10 students is assigned a clinician, a medical expert as a mentor, and topics include cartilage regeneration, building systems for improved wound health, healing, and controlled implants. So, as I mentioned, in total there are about 40 students. And some of the things that they're doing would have been absolutely impossible just a few years ago. This includes, you know, um, cartilage regeneration, wound healing, and nerve muscle regeneration. The ability to 3D print living cells, white stem cells, is enabling a range of very fundamental biological studies to be done. It also means that commercially available 3D printers soon get overtaken. They need specialty 3D printers. So um, current 3D printers available commercially that print metal polymer and biomaterial printing are still very limited in the range of materials and the cells that they can accommodate. So the universities continue to develop their own 
printers in parallel. Really amazing when you think of it. They're developing their own printers so they can 3D print almost anything that goes wrong with the body. Wow. The process also needs a lot of computing power, including, for example, for medical imaging, to provide the information about the defects which need to be repaired. So while they currently have got state-of-the-art printers in their own laboratories, which are very powerful and, I might add, very complex, when it comes down to providing a clinical solution, there are going to be very simple, dedicated 3D printers that are customised for those particular applications. So if you want something fixed, you go to one computer and 3D printer. If you want something else fixed, you go to another one. Just as an example of this, they've been developing a bio pen for orthopaedic surgeons to use in cartilage regeneration because the preference is to pr print direct into the defect using a handheld 3D printer. Now, that's extraordinary, isn't it? A handheld 3D printer. So you go into the wound or into the whatever needs to be prepared and fix it. So it really makes sense to have delicate printers for dedicated medical applications. I think that's extraordinary. Oh, incidentally, I read this week that the um, iPhone, which has got the attachments which enables you to 3D print direct from your iPhone, so you scan using the iPhone, get the um, um, designs, and then you can 3D print using your iPhone. That should be out towards the end of the year. There was also a great um, and really interesting retail fact that made news this week. Apple stores, you know, those wonderful stores where the customer service is beyond belief, make more money per square foot than any other store in the world. And they make almost twice as much as Tiffany the Jewelers. And I don't know whether you've been into Tiffany's lately, but that place is bloody expensive. The retail locations, and this seems hard to imagine too, Apple stores turned 15 years old this week. And, you know, it, it appears they were a phenomenal business move by, um, by Apple because they have greater sales figures per square foot than any other retail location on the planet according to data from eMarketer. Apple ranked number one, the top of the list of more than 250 companies, beating Tiffany & Co and luxury brands such as Coach and Michael Coors. And the data pertains to sales figures over the past 12 months. Apple stores rack up an amazing $5,500 per square foot so just use your hands and make a little square foot um, area, $5,500 per square foot, uh, $3,700 for Murphy USA, $2,900 for Tiffany, $1,500 for Michael Coors, and $1,200 for Coach. So nearly five times more money per square foot for Apple than for Coach. I find that's incredible. It also says something about the people who say that absolutely brilliant customer service is too expensive. Really? Mm, perhaps not. And the last piece of news I want to tell you is my new website went up yesterday. Um, I'd love you to check it out and give me your feedback. So simply go to bobpritchard.com. And give it a test drive. And I really want to know what you think. And uh, the photo on the landing page uh, is brilliant. It doesn't look anything like me, really. But it's brilliant. And uh, it was done by a really great friend of mine, Maurice Rinaldi, who's um, from Hollywood, California, who's photographed the Queen and Princess Diana and has more covers of magazines than you can throw a brick over. He did it for me, and uh, it's a great shot. So check out the new website, 
bobpritchard.com and let me know what you think. If you love it, you know, send presents, applaud, bottles of wine, any of that. If you hate it, well, them's the breaks, I guess. So if you're a regular listener to this program, you'll know that I um, was recently appointed the Honorary President of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management, which is the premier organization for business in the US. And if you're serious about being successful and improving your skill level, your status and your network, you should join today. So go to AISMM.us and join now. Now, one of the primary keys to success is commitment, dedication, and continuing to believe passionately in your objectives, irrespective of what obstacles are thrown in your path. And my guest today is a tireless and dedicated and unbelievably talented entrepreneurs. Once he's committed to a cause, will do absolutely anything necessary to achieve his goals. Now, Nick Hardcastle, is the co-founder of the Australian Theatre Company. He's a fantastic guy. And next month, early June, I think about the 6th, I can't remember exactly, has an incredibly ambitious program of back-to-back plays at the Matrix Theatre in Los Angeles. Just imagine back-to-back plays. Nick hardly ever sleeps. He's simultaneously writing a song for a film, filming a music video while he's producing two plays on a shoestring budget and he's acting in one of them. Now, that level of dedication ultimately leads to success and Nick has success in spades. Now, I'll be back with Nick immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, this is where we give you the insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting people. You know what they do? And we try to work out what it is that makes them tick and what it is that makes them successful. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a new business or undertake a new venture. And, you know, entrepreneurs have to wear so many hats and have to take so many risks that, um, unfortunately, many of them fail. But one of the primary keys to success is commitment, dedication, and continuing to believe in your objectives, no matter what obstacles are thrown in your path, no matter what you do, whether you open a local dry cleaner shop or an ice cream shop or you've got a new app or you're in the theatre, people are going to throw obstacles, not only people, but obstacles are going to pop up all the time. Now, my guest today is a tireless and dedicated entrepreneur who, once committed to a cause, will do anything necessary to achieve his goals. (laughs) Nick Hartcastle is a highly talented Australian entertainer and media personality, and he's got extensive experience in stage, screen, radio, music, and television. And he's based in LA, not that far from where we are, and he's enjoyed 
success around the world. He's also a bloody good guy. He's a really nice guy. <laughs> and um, so Nick began his TV hosting career in Australia with some of Australia's most favourite programs and his sense of fun and reverence and his up-for-anything attitude made him a favourite with kids in his role on Saturday Disney, Nickelodeon, alongside the Wiggles on ABC Kids and a host of five seasons of Australia's highest-rating children's show, Creature Features. But Nick's a popular MC and concert performer in the US and in the UK. He's the creator, producer and host of an Australian talent showcase series called Saturday in the Apartment in the UK and Sunday in Hollywood in LA. And this showcases great Australian talent and, you know, as most of you listening know, um, whether it's in the music business or acting or producing or directing or all of those entertainment skills, Australia talent abounds. Now, Nick's many theatre credits include the world premiere cast of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical, which was a fantastic show. I think a hell of a lot of people in around the United States have seen it. Brilliant. The show's toured for two years, winning Nick respect as a musical theatre star. It is now the most successful Australian musical in history. So why I chose to speak to Nick today is because of his role as the co-founder of the Australian Theatre Company, which is an incredibly ambitious program, and their first production, Holding the Man, enjoyed a sellout season at the Matrix Theatre in Los Angeles, becoming the highest grossing guest production of all time in that theatre. Now, I spoke to a joint friend of ours, the amazing and hugely talented actress, Kim Wilson, and... Uh, Kim said, Nick is extraordinarily motivated, works with two other uniquely obsessive people. They rarely sleep, and Nick fits in all his other consuming roles, like simultaneously writing a song for a film and then filming a music video while he was simultaneously producing two plays on a shoestring budget, acting in one of them while performing at concerts. Kim says, this man is a machine. Wow. <laughs> next time I need a next time I need a reference, I'm gonna to go to Kim. Well, yeah. <laughs> that is one hell of an introduction and I'm pleased that amongst all of that extraordinary activity, I have managed to get the wonderful Nick on the line. Nick, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Oh Bob, thank you very much. That was uh, that was incredible. I kinda of feel like I'm on This Is Your Life or something. Yeah, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> well, nearly. Um, before we talk about the amazingly ambitious, wonderful project that you're undertaking in a few weeks, let's talk a bit about you. And I guess the first question, um, apart from your theatre talent, obviously, or your performing talent, where do you get this extraordinary energy and drive and love for everything entertainment? Is that something that ran in your family, or where did that pick up from? No. Um, my mother was a, a beauty therapist. My dad's a clinical uh, consultant in psychiatry. Um, so <laughs> explains a no. lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Inside and out, Bob. Inside and out. Um and I grew up in a small town uh, called Sawtell near Coffs Harbour in North, um, North New South Wales. Yes. So it was, honestly, I was, a, I was a, a, about six years old when I went to see my sister in a play and just uh, instantly knew that that was what I wanted to do. And my sister and I had already, as, as small kids, we were always putting on shows and we would, you know, as soon as we learned how to record our voice on a tape recorder, we were making up silly stuff and I just have always known that, that to entertain was sort of in my, my DNA <clears throat> and uh, you know I was fortunate in some respects growing up in a small town because it meant that we had access you know you, it was just oh yeah my mate Bob's got you know a radio show he'll put you on it was literally like that sure. you know when you grow up in a smaller town you can you know, everyone knows everybody so I was able to get access to the local TV station and by 14 I had my own radio show Fantastic. You did that about 60 years sooner than me. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's hard yakka, though, um, you know, particularly in your 
teenage years or whatever, it, it's very hard to become an entertainer in Australia and be able to earn enough money to be able to live. You know, I, I was on yeah. television. I was on television six nights a week for a number of years and um, mm-hmm. trod the boards for near 20 years and I, I gave up simply because it was just too bloody hard to make a buck a, a, a cost, yeah. consistent dollar so how did you yeah what at what stage did you say um i need to um look further afield than Australia? i don't think i've ever really approached it in that way bob and i completely understand why one would i um my disillusionment you know, kind of didn't, it wasn't anything to do with not being able to earn money. I've actually been very fortunate. The longest I've ever been unemployed was about six weeks as a performer. Um, and I, I've always had really consistent work. But for me, it was, uh, honestly, it was just that I wasn't really enjoying the work anymore. Mm. I started as an eight-year-old and, um, you know, doing ads and editorial and things like that. And then, as I said, radio and then going to television, you know, when I was... Um, 18, 19, hosting and then Home and Away um, and various other shows. And then I did a lot of theatre work and it just never stopped uh, until I moved to London. And I thought that that was going to be the next step, uh, you know, in my sort of, not just my career, but in my development as an artist. And uh, unfortunately, I was attached to a bunch of projects that uh, all fell over during the crash. Um, right. that's when I moved over there. So all the investment that was attached to those projects just fell out and um, I'd forgone other opportunities and there I was stuck there with nothing and so I was going up for all these other jobs that frankly I just wouldn't have done if it wasn't for the fact that I was used right. to being... A, yeah, well, there's that. But also, you know, I'm used to earning my living out of being an entertainer and performer. So I um, have always been a creative and entrepreneurial type and um, I started doing a bit of an apprenticeship in producing with Backrow Productions who produced Priscilla Quinnivadez at the musical and I took on a consulting role with Mike Stock. I don't know if you remember Stock Aiken and Waterman, the hit makers yep, from the yeah, 80s. I do. Yep. Yeah, so Mike Stock and this guy Steve Crosby who created a pop group called Steps. I don't know yep. if you remember yep. them either, but um, I do. Yeah, so they approached me about helping to develop a children's entertainment brand based off of the fact that I had, you know, a really strong history with children's entertainment with the ABC. Yes. Um, and so. That's, so that's where it kind of really started in London. I mean, I, I produced my own records in Australia and I, I kind of worked as a segment producer. I had some sense of what it takes to be a producer, but those two projects specifically in London kind of got me more involved in, in the creative process and, and team building and raising money and, and developing content and understanding branding and, you know, and sort of becoming a marketer as well. and. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the fact that I could, you know, have more of an active role in the the shape of the kind of art that I wanted to to make. So, um, so I kind of, essentially, I kind of fired my agent and just said, look, I'm not going out for stuff now. And, and then when opportunities would come to me, I'd assess whether or not I wanted to take them on to the performer or not. Um, and it sort of went like that for a while. So, is, your, is, yeah. your, is your primary love theatre or is it television or doesn't it matter as long as it's challenging and... Um, and Yeah, I, I feel like theatre is sort of like my church, but at the same time, um, I, just, I, just like to, I just like to put on a show, Bob. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter to me what the medium is. Um, <laughs> But being, there's, not, there's nothing quite like being in the theatre and having a live audience. Um, having said that, there's also a wonderful... Um, it, it, there's something wonderful about being able to really, like, sculpt and craft something by, you know, being able to do a second take or, or do a close-up or the way that you work in an edit, you know, and just really shape that experience. Sure. And also the fact that you can reach more people with, with television, you know? And you're... You're a very accomplished stage performer as well. How does that fit into your repertoire? Do you is that something you really love doing, being out 
in front of a live crowd then? As a professional. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit of a show-off. Yeah, you can't get out of your blood, isn't it? I, I haven't performed yeah. since I was probably about 30-something, and every time I go to a concert or for that matter, every time I go to a play, I sit there and I think, gee, I wish that was me. I'd give anything to be up there because I'm a bit of a show-off too. Well, right? we can. What you ask for, Bob, we're always looking for talent for the Australian Theatre Company. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I wasn't so old, I'd do it. Well, there's, there's, there's roles for everybody. Um, but, Bob, you're entertaining people now. I mean, you're, you're still you're telling stories and you're communicating and that's definitely an extension of of that in what you're still doing, I'm sure. Yeah, and I, I, I do a lot of speaking and I'm one of those speakers that jumps up and down and runs up and down the stage and races into the audience and challenges people, etc. And to me, it's kind of rock and roll without the music. And uh, yeah, I love it. Now, it's a, it's a huge step coming to the US. Um, mm. How did that come about? How did, you were so you're you're in London. You're working. You're learning about production, and you you're getting mm-hmm. this marketing string to your bow. Um, how did going to the US come about? Uh, it was there's no question in my mind. It's a, it was entirely meant to be. I was having a really tough time uh, staying in London because the UK border agency kept changing their requirements and everything became more restricted. Every April they were handing down tougher restrictions for, uh, you know, Australians uh, who didn't have any British or European patriality to, to live and work in the UK. Yeah. And I, my visa was coming up again and it was going to expire and I was no longer eligible for these other things. And then out of the blue, I get a phone call from this agency in the United States that I had paid six years prior to enter me in the green card lottery. And I, you know, I sort of forgot all about it. I would, I would every now and then get emails from them and update my information, but I just sort of forgot about it. And I didn't have any Broadway dreams anymore or any Hollywood dreams for that matter. I you sort probably of, never ever won anything ever, ever. I've never won a chook raffle, Bob. Yeah, I know, I'm never going to win this. <laughs> That's great, I love it. And then out of the blue, this woman calls me and says, congratulations and I'm, I'm just like uh, what is this and then she starts to try and sell me books so I'm like mm, I don't know this smells fishy so I asked her if I had any kind of reference number and she gave me my case number yeah. and the number to call the Department of State in Kentucky which I did and they said yes sir this is a legitimate case number and I was on the floor because I had no idea what this meant. And I was having such a hard time staying in London. I, I knew I wasn't ready to go back to Australia. Yeah. But going to the States was just not even a thing. I, I considered going to China because I was <laughs> consulting to CCTV and GXTV in Guangxi, and they had asked if I would consider coming on board. And I was thinking about it because I thought it could be an interesting adventure. But I never even thought about the US. And then suddenly I had this, like, hallelujah moment. And this rite of passage. Love it. That's, that's great. Yeah. Now, um, since you've been in the States, how long have you been in the US? I arrived um, I arrived on the 2nd of December, 2012. Oh, okay. So two and a half years, three and a half years. You've certainly stamped your footprint on the Australian entertainment scene in the US. And it's a pretty <laughs> avenue. I mean, you've... Well, I mean, I worked very closely with the Australian government in the UK. um, I don't know if you remember, Bob, but we had these horrific fires and floods in 2009, the fires being in Victoria and the floods being in northern New South Wales and Queensland. Right. And they devastated the country. And I had not been in the UK long, um, but I had a small group of Australian friends there and we all just felt so isolated watching, you know, watching this happen um, and not being able to, to get home or to, because I mean, my my own property in Australia got flooded, was affected. It got flooded, um, so and my dad was my tenant at the time, so he was displaced and all of that. And then there were people I know who totally lost their homes and and it was really upsetting for us. So we um, we got together and and put together a massive concert at the Palace Theatre which was where Priscilla was about to open. And within three weeks, we sold out that show 
and raised about £40,000 for the British Red Cross Australian Fire and Flood Relief Appeal. Fantastic. And um, because we put this together, I, I got to meet everybody at the High Commission and the various kind of Australian tourism bodies, etc. Um, because we wanted them to endorse the show, and they did. And as a result of that, I was very connected with that community. And I was very invested now in that community because I'd seen what they'd come together to do, and that made me feel really good. Right. And, um, and from there, I started a regular Australian talent showcase called Sunday in the Apartment, which a chamber of commerce in the UK called Australian Business um, came on board as my partner with. And that's been running now, it's in its sixth year, um, and it keeps, just keeps getting bigger, bigger and bigger, which is great. We're moving into a, a new venue called the Rara Room in Piccadilly Circus next this coming Sunday. So I'm flying to London on Thursday to quickly pop over and do that show. Great. Um, yeah, and we've had some awesome artists come through there, and it's it's provided a great platform and a springboard for a lot of emerging artists that are coming from Oz to, you know, take on the UK and Europe. And, um, yeah. I'm really proud of that. So because of all of that work, when I moved to LA, the first person I met was the Consul General because the High Commissioner made the introduction. And so, yeah, so, you know, straight away, she was incredibly supportive. Uh, that was Karen Landon at the yeah, time. she's great. Yeah. Um, awesome lady and a great operator and, you know, so generous to me and just just said, look, Nick, if you want to, if you would like to be involved in this and this and this, we could really use your help. And it kind of just happens like that. I did another showcase here, Sunday in Hollywood, and, and the concert got behind that. And they saw what I could do. Then they just started booking me to host almost every event. <laughs> every event they, they did. And so when I went to them with the, the idea of Australian Theatre Company, they were, they were my, my first supporter because they could see how much talent there was here to harness. They could see that it was an opportunity to be an extension of their work by telling Australian stories and sharing our culture and our spirit and by collaborating with American practitioners and opening new worlds to American audiences. It was, it was going to deepen the relationship between the two countries, and that's their objective. So they were very supportive uh, straight away, and by virtue of me starting Australian Theatre Company, it's created another community... Yes. And, um, and I guess, yeah, as a result, I've ended up sort of, I don't know how, but sort of becoming mistress. Everywhere I go, you seem to pop up. Now, all our listeners know about the fabulous film and TV actors that are household names in the US, the Nicole Kidmans and the Jackmans and the Hemsworths and yeah. Margot Robbie and the list goes on and on and yeah. on. But apart Which is from so those, great. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And apart from those highly visible stars, there's a solid contingent of up-and-coming actors, producers, directors and writers and costumers, yeah. editors, yeah. all of those people. The breadth of talent over here that has come from Australia is, is mind-blowing. Yeah. So how tight is that community and how much has their support helped you in just such a short time to really make your mark in the US? Um, I, I think, I think it's, it, it is pretty tight um, because we have a shared experience and we all, we all understand what it's like to leave your, your home and, and take that risk and there's a lot of support. And, you know, there's people, there's people here who have opened their arms and their hearts to me that, were we back home, I probably would never have heard boo from them because, yeah. you know, we're busy with our lives and we've got, but, but because they understand what we're all trying to achieve and, and the risk that we've taken, they really appreciate that. And I'm very grateful for, for those people. I mean, Kim's one of them. I mean, I, I've met Kim twice socially in Australia a hundred years ago. Yeah. I would never have expected her to know who I was if I sat up in her porridge, much less invite me into her life, her home, and be so incredibly kind to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I was also really lucky. I mean, my, my best mate here is Jackie Weaver, and she's been doing very well over here. She's sensational, so, isn't she? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, that was really helpful to have, to have Jackie here and just be able to, you know, share the experience of adjusting to living here with, with her. Um, 
So, you know, that, I, I'm, I'm very lucky that I, I'm surrounded by just, you know, great people. Now, let's talk about this amazing project that you're undertaking for the Australian Theatre Company next month um, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. You're presenting two major Australian plays featuring exceptional yeah. Australian actors back yep. to back. I find, that, <laughs> I find that extraordinary. God, somebody, you, you, you've either got a lot of balls or you know what the hell you're doing, one or the other. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, my yeah. lot um, I Both, Bob. Yeah. I mean, I, are we allowed to swear on your show? Well, I do. I get little notes from people. I was, was going to use that old. I was going to use that old saying. We're not here to fuck spiders. Yeah, you know what I, mean? I agree. I agree. <laughs> I just, I just feel like I'm going to throw everything at this because we we did a series of readings last year, which we're going to do again this year at the same time as doing our double feature, and and the two of the plays that we did were, were Ruben Guthrie by Brennan Cowell and Speaking in Tongues by Andrew Bovell. Yeah. And they both resonated so strongly with our audiences at the time and also with the casts that we had put together for the readings. And it was obvious to me that that they deserved the opportunity to be fully produced. And we didn't have a next move in terms of what we were going to stage at that, at that point when we did those readings. And to harness the enthusiasm of not just the, the cast and the directors of those readings, but but my team and the audience and the people who witnessed what what happened in those readings that night was a no-brainer, just to go, right, let's get you all involved. And they really provided the wind in my sails, you know, to, to kind of... I just knew that they had my back and that they wanted to see this happen and they wanted to be a success. And so, you know, we are a not-for-profit organisation. We became a 501c3 last year. Um, yeah. I thought that that was absolutely imperative for people to understand that I'm not, even though, of course, we can participate in commercial projects if we get to that point. I wanted everyone to know that what I was trying to build was for everybody. It's not the Nick Hardcastle show. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than my colleagues. And we wanted to go, we want to build this into what it can be, which is a world-class arts organization. So I think by doing that, I was, kind of making that point very clear to everyone. And as a result, you know, the generosity that we've experienced has been extraordinary. Um, I'm not worried about the back-to-back business, even though it it, it is a lot. We've got an incredible team. I've got the one design team. They're all award-winning designers. Our set designer, John Iacovelli, is, you know, an Emmy Emmy winner, and we've got Ovation winners and Tony winners working on this show. Um, The cast, Fabulous, um, as you said, you know Matt Passmore from the Glades and Satisfaction, yes. and um, Kim, um, who you know, although may not be very well known here, has an incredible body of work as an actor in Australia. Yeah, um, absolutely. Tina Kovacs and Jamie Irvine, who are in Speaking in Tongues with Matt and Kim, are extraordinary actors. Um, and then the cast of Ruben Guthrie is very different, but I, you know. I'm working on that show. Um, I played Ruben Guthrie, the, the, the title role, in the UK premiere. Um, but this time I'm playing his gay best friend, Damien. And Nathan Sapsford, who's playing Ruben, is extraordinary in this role. Um, like, going to rehearsals uh, with Nathan and Vivian Powell, who's playing mother, and David Ross Patterson, who's playing the father, and Shane Connor, who's playing Ray, and this stunning young um, Ukrainian actress, Sasha Yerogova, who's playing his supermodel girlfriend, Zoya. And then finally, Olivia Simone, who's a graduate from Australia. Yes. Like, going to rehearsals with these people and our director, Peter Blackburn, is like, uh, it's just like, uh, I don't know how to say it, like Kidney Candy sort It's just, it's so, it's so fulfilling and it's so exciting and you know, the, the work that we're all doing together and the work that Jennifer Soldatic is doing with, with her cast, Speaking Tongues, it's just next-level stuff. You know, LA, LA theatre gets a bad rap and I think that that's largely because there is a lot of really terrible work 
being put out there. Mm. You know, people just take on vanity projects or they're putting on showcases for themselves or each other and, you know, but... Yeah, of course, there's also so much theatre out there, isn't there? With, you know, um, for those of you who are not familiar with LA, there's small theatres, um, boutique theatres everywhere. There's, there's more, more theatres in LA than any other city in the world because most of them are under 99 seats, as you say, the little black box theatres. But um, we don't have a theatre district and we don't have the same kind of theatre culture that London and New York have. And while that can be a disadvantage... It can also, the way that I look at it, I see it as being a huge advantage because it means that we're not locked into these sort of archaic ways of thinking or these, you know, old school ways of you must, this is how it works. What are you talking about? You're putting on two shows back to back and you're playing Thursday to Tuesday. That's ridiculous. Well, that was my first reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Says who? I mean, the thing about playing on Mondays and Tuesdays is that I can now get people from every other theatre yep. to come and see my show because right. they're dark on Monday nights. And I can tier the pricing on a Monday to make sure that I can get industry people who don't go to anything else on a Monday into my show. So if it means that I'm going to cannibalise the house a little bit by sort of papering it on a Monday or Tuesday night, but I'm getting the right people in that theatre to see the show, Absolutely. then that's a great investment. I agree. And yes. I wait to be proved wrong, of course. Like, I'm totally open to the idea that it's a risk and maybe it won't work. But, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to have any more success by doing it the same way as everyone else. No, so I agree. We'll now, see. Now, I, I think one of the things that most people don't realise is that from concept to realisation takes extraordinary persistence against all the doubters, and I'm sure you have them, and try to raise mm. the funding to put it on Mm. was a challenge and I'm sure and it's an ongoing challenge because the Australian Theatre Company yeah. in Los Angeles does a whole bunch of other things apart from just put mm-hmm. on the odd show um, how do you go about raising the funds for um, this incredible undertaking Bob it's um, it, it's really it's really difficult um, because at this stage a lot of foundation grants that we would be a shoo-in for in terms of um, meeting criteria, we're not eligible to apply for yet because we haven't got two years of financial history as a 501c3 operating. So How we had to rely on special events and individual donors, <laughs> pardon me, um, and corporate sponsorship. And it's really difficult because when you're brand new, I mean, it's hard for a corporate to kind of really be able to analyze what the benefit is for them. Like, you know, there's not enough data yet for them to kind of put their hand in their pocket for a large amount. So, you know, we get a number of sort of smaller um, financial amounts and we get a lot of in-kind sponsorship, which is still helpful. Um, But this year, the Australian government came on board with a small amount of money um, when I say small, it's significant to us, but still small. But it's yeah. the first time they've, yeah, the first time they've put you know money into us, and that's so exciting. The new consul general Chelsea Martin has really picked up where Karen Lanyon left off in terms of support for us, and she's even raised it a notch. So she's amazing, and her whole team have always been very supportive of us. Um, Qantas have been very helpful. Um, they've given us um, they've given us a little bit of money, and they you know flew out our director from Australia for us. Um, we have a new um, corporate partner, which is Willow.com, right. a new shopping app. They've given us money, and then we've run some crowdfunding. I think people are getting crowdfunding fatigue. It's it's not fun crowdfunding right. online. It's um, hard work, isn't it? It's really hard work, and it's just like it's really. It's how do you make? How do you kind of? How do you cut through as being more worthy than some of these other causes? It's, it's really interesting, you know, how positioning yourself in sure. um, in an online crowdfunding campaign. And I think we did a pretty good campaign, but thankfully we were able to raise um, the money we needed outside of the campaign, and the campaign month has, um, has been really helpful. And also the campaign's been... A good long lead promotional campaign for us yeah. because we, we couldn't commit to long lead. Yeah, we couldn't create, we couldn't 
get long league press because we couldn't commit to the opening dates without making sure funding was in place. So that was kind of, you know, that was kind of helpful in that regard. Um, but, you know, we have um, set up an auspicing arrangement with ATYP in Australia now, the Australian Theatre for Young People. Yes. Um, we've, um, we've joined forces with them to create a truly unique international scholarship for two emerging theatre makers out of Australia and their international ambassadors, Rose Byrne and Rebel Wilson. So Rose and Rebel have each put up $45,000 of their own money over the next three years. Yeah. And um, each of them will select a scholarship winner and that recipient will get uh, $10,000 cash. They'll spend a year with um, the creative uh, team at ATYP kind of being mentored and working on their shows as well as developing their own show. And then we'll fly them out on Qantas. Um, they get profiled at Bigger Day USA Gala and spend a week in professional development with us at the Australian Theatre Company. I love it. Nick, um, it's, it's an audacious dream and I, I love it. Now, <laughs> the, the community really needs projects like this to, to, to succeed and the, um, the company needs not only ticket sales but funding. So if anyone's listening yeah. out there, individuals or company who love the theatre and admire the Australian spirit and we great Aussies um, would like to um, donate to help this fabulous theatre company, uh, how can they assist? Oh, well, that's really kind of you to even put that out there. I really do appreciate it. Um, well, you can go to australiantheatrecompany.com and um, and you can buy your tickets there, and there should be a donate button on there. But I'm, you know, if people are serious about becoming a part of helping to build ATC, that's our hashtag, hashtag build ATC. People are serious about coming on board. I want to create personal relationships with those donors, so I'm more than happy. Um, I, I want to ensure that they feel like what they're contributing to, they're also benefiting from, and um, so. You know, you can um, you can contact me through Australian Theatre Company as well. Uh, my email is just nick at australiantheatrecompany dot com, and I'd be more than happy to you know to speak with anyone who'd like to to get involved. And, yeah, nick is such a genuine guy. Um, we um, went to a a little cocktail reception a few weeks ago, and um, Nick is tirelessly talking to everybody and and really schmoozing and being and. and Absolutely mm-hmm. being a fantastic host. So, um, Nick Hardcastle, you make me proud to be an Aussie. You know, I, I don't say oh, that. Oh, thank you, Bob. That's so kind <laughs> of you. Thanks for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to know more about the Australian Theatre Company Productions, Speaking in Tongues and Reuben Guthrie, back-to-back, still find that amazing, at the Matrix Theatre <laughs> in Los Angeles in June, Go to AustralianTheatreCompany.com. That's Australian. And remember, it's theatre, R-E, not E-R. Yes, that's right. Good <laughs> thinking. <laughs> so go to the AustralianTheatreCompany.com. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel, and we're the number one global broad business radio show for entrepreneurs, and this week bring broadcast from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. I'd like to give a shout out to the Australian Theatre Company, right at this moment in LA, they're rehearsing, so good on your team. We look forward to seeing you soon. Ken Rakowski is a brilliant host of Business Rockstars radio show on CBS stations and 
lots of other great media outlets across the country, sent me this during the week and I thought it was fascinating. According to Uber's Keith Chen, who is the head of economic research at Uber, riders are more likely to accept surge-priced fares when their phone is nearing the end of its battery life. Now, I guess that makes a lot of sense. When your phone is dying, you need to get home. Time suddenly becomes more valuable than money. Therefore, it's easier to justify paying 10 bucks for a 5 buck ride than, you know, heaven forbid, waiting for a few minutes and hailing a cab or having to walk home with no phone to play with. Sadly, companies secretly collecting insane amounts of data isn't really all that surprising. But this is a little different because Uber might be using that data to exploit your behaviour and make themselves more money and that ain't cool. Keith Chen claims that Uber would never use this knowledge to set artificial price searches, but then why collect this data? They're a ride-sharing company, so why do they want to know what your battery level is? And even if Uber isn't taking advantage of this now, it's not hard to imagine them playing this card if they need extra cash at any time. In addition, Uber's notorious for collecting a suspicious amount of data from its users' phones. Back in 2014, a security researcher said that Uber was accessing everything from voice call and messaging histories to data usage details. Now, there's no accusations being made yet, but next time you see surge pricing when your phone battery's low, charge your phone, try it again. You might find it a lot cheaper. That's really interesting, and uh, if you are an entrepreneur, look out for Business Rockstars and Ken Rakowski. It is a great show, and it really has fantastic guests every single day of the week. Now, I've flown over 5 million miles, and yet I'm still a white-knuckle flyer, and I hate the whole process. There's the commute to the airport, getting there more than two hours before the flight, the long lines to check in your bag, then going through security, then there's the crappy food when you're on the plane, and you know, not to mention being bored shitless in the lounge, and you sit around on the plane with very little to do. And yet air travel is really our only option for travelling hundreds of miles quickly. But the Hyperloop could change all that. For those of you who have been living under a rock for the past few years and don't know what the Hyperloop is, the Hyperloop's a tubular transport system that's going to carry passengers in capsules at speeds in excess of 700 miles an hour. Development of the Hyperloop's proceeding very rapidly. Imagine LA to Vegas in 30 minutes or LA to San Francisco in 45 minutes. But Hyperloop is um, trying to create an entirely new travel experience. There are four ways that they're revolutionising transport. The first is it'll be more accessible. Hyperloop will put stations in the middle of cities so there's no commute to outside the city airport hub. Secondly... They will no ticket lines. Thirdly, the seats will actually be really comfortable. And fourthly, it'll be affordable. In Elon Musk's original white paper, he suggested $20 for a one-way ticket. So watch out for the Hyperloop. It's proceeding very quickly. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, all that I've seen of it and the demonstration that was on the news the other night it, um, it's an absolute winner. I'd much rather jump on the train, get to Vegas. I go to Vegas a lot, get to Vegas in 20 minutes. That works for me. That whole airport schlep is a pain. So I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you the Bob Pritchard Radio Show since 2011. And if you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, Please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com. Remember, it's a new one. I'd love you to have a look at it and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. And remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, if you're not really living on the edge, and I mean out there kicking the hell out of everything you can, then you're taking up too much space. Let somebody through that really wants to make a difference in this world. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Don't forget, yesterday I launched my new website and I look forward to your feedback. Give it to me straight. Let me know what you think. Simply go to bobpritchard.com. This is Bob Pritchard and I look forward to your company again next week when I will again 
broadcast from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.